Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, and we have a heck of a show for you today. I might say that every single time, but today I really mean it. (laughs) I mean it every time. I really do. But today, as we kick off, it isn't the actual kickoff day, but as we launch our new year, year number two, which is season three, but I split the first year into two seasons. So now it's season three and we're kicking off year two. Y- you follow me, don't you? But today's show is a New York Times bestseller, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, 22 books to his credit, 21 superstar rock solid hits starring none other than that spy that we all love, Scott Harbath. Who is it? It's Brad Thor, and the book is Rising Tiger. We're going to talk about this cover, which is flat out gorgeous. But Brad Thor, no offense to anyone uh, anywhere, uh, this is one of my favorite interviews so far. And really, I feel almost cheesy saying that because I love every single one of my interviews, and they're all fantastic. Whether you're a huge rock star or you're on the way up, I don't know what it was. You know, sometimes uh, the planets are aligned, uh, you call it, but. The energy's there. The questions are good. The answers are fantastic. It's just rocking and rolling. And let's just say you are in for 59 and a half minutes of Rock'em Sock'em interview from a guy who's got energy, class, style. He's a tornado, man. He comes rushing in and you just want to get caught up in it. Why am I still talking? He's waiting in the green room. Ladies and gentlemen, right here on the Thriller Zone, please welcome Brad Thor. Hello there. You win the award for the most handsome background. Uh, yeah, my office. It's not bad. I never thought I'd be broadcasting from here, but here we are. It is really... Uh, luxuriously handsome is the whole motif that dark or is it just kind of that sexy corner that you have going so there's two rooms i'm at a uh, at a desk that's got wheels on it it's a standing desk so i'm sitting in between two rooms so this is uh it's got a fireplace over here and a tv set and a couch so this is kind of a reading slash library and then the work happens uh in the bigger room on the other side of this very nice thank you Little Art Deco motif in your bar. That's super classy. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it's a lot of fun right there. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. You were a QVC hand model at one time, weren't you? <laughs> Look at me. I've done it so many times now, I can do it without even thinking. You have to train your mind because what I'm seeing in the screen is the exact opposite of what my brain wants to do. You know? Right, right. Like, here's the book. Uh, there it is. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. But thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, getting to do this with you. Are you kidding me? This is like the biggest honor ever for me. So I really appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm glad. I always love talking thrillers with people. So this is this is cool. Tell me about your typewriter real quick before we dive in here, because I've got two vintage typewriters in my office. So what do you got over there under the window? That is the a Royal 
And that oh, I've got a royal. Yeah, it, nice. Yeah, that that was my mother's. Uh, oh, wow. So back in the day when she was writing love letters to my dad, um, that was the thing that uh, she wrote it on. And That's we have the, amazing. the hard pseudo leather case that it comes in. It's yep. yeah. two pieces, right? It's the yep. base and yeah. then the, the lid that comes over the top. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you, me and Tom Hanks, we're into collecting the, we like our typewriters. Boy, I saw a Tom Hanks collection. Yeah, I, that I have two, that and an old IBM Selectric, but Tom has like an entire room dedicated to it, doesn't he? Yeah. It's always funny. I like to find out what the boys collect as toys. Uh, you know, you got your Jack Cars, who it's all ammunition, weapons, and so forth. <laughs> then you got the guys who go, you know, fine pens, exquisite yeah. watches, typewriters. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think you're right in the middle of that, though, aren't you? Because you. I've got lots of guns and ammo. I got lots of terrific pens. I'm a big watch guy and I love my typewriters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's a cool thing. You're, I think you are the first New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author ever on the show. So, wow. Welcome. Wow. Thank you. Thank How you. About that? Yeah. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. As we are celebrating, we just launched year number two. So you're, you're right there at the head of the kickoff. Wow. Congratulations. That's Thank great. And we're going to get to this beautiful book, Rising Tiger, a hell of a read, Brad, in just a couple of minutes. Um, and I'm going to talk about this probably later. Anybody who listens to the show, I'm a, I'm a freak for covers. And you are now officially in my book of top five book covers of 2022. Wow. Well, yeah. thank you. And can I tell you a little something about that while you have it in your hand? Please do. It's so handsome. Thank you. I, I got to work with the art director from the jump on this one, which is great. And he said, well, what are you thinking? And I told him where the story was going to be set. And I said, there are these two beautiful, huge brass doors at the city palace of Jaipur in India. And I would love to use that as a background and we'll build out from there. So the doors were my idea. Everything else is Jimmy's. Jimmy did a great job. But if you touch, you can braille that book and you can yeah, feel what yeah. the doors at the city palace in Jaipur, India feel like. So they have embossed the book with the exact details that are in the, at the palace in Jaipur, which is really cool. That, Plus the difference in the transition into the tiger's head where you don't have the, the brailing ability there. It's just, that's fabulous. The guy did a great job. When I very first glanced at it, I thought, oh, look, it's the, uh, uh, a surface has been torn away. And yeah. just quick glance. I'm like, oh, torn away. And then I went, oh, no, idiot. That's a tiger. Hello. I mean, yeah. by the way, that in, and so you're never going to see me do the paper tear. That is such a hackneyed, overdone, so old. I mean, that's like 1990s kind of a thing, you know, like <laughs> mid 90s. Or maybe that's a little too early, but uh, yeah, maybe not mid 90s, maybe, maybe yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. But yeah. But yeah, it's, it's we had a lot of fun with this. And again, I picked the doors. Everything else is Jimmy, the art director at Emily Bessler Books. And Jimmy is just a, he's a brilliant, brilliant artist. So. And what's super cool is, and I just saw this on your website, is you're uh, giving away challenge coins that look exactly like this uh, all through the month. Yeah, that is so Cover on one side, and then the back side is actually the artwork from my very first thriller, The Lions of Lucerne. So that's the lion's oh. head with the American flag in its mouth. Wow. Fun stuff. So much to cover here. And I, I want to be super respectful of your time, so I'm going to squeeze it all in. Uh, let's talk books. Were you always, were books always a part of your childhood? Were you always a big reader from way back? 
Yep. So I got to tell you, when I read the book Freakonomics uh, as a young adult, I really, really was blown away by one big thing in Freakonomics. It's that I grew up hearing, and you probably did too, that if you want your children to be readers, you should read to them, that that's the key to making them big readers. That's actually not what they found when they looked at studies uh, and covered that particular kind of myth in Freakonomics. What they found was, is uh, if you want your children to be great readers, that you need to have books in your home and they need to see you reading. It is a behavior that your children will copy if they say, see you doing it. So my parents were huge readers, huge and thriller readers. That's what they read. They read Clancy, Custler, uh, Le Carre, Freddie Forsyth, and on and on and on. And I probably, you know, I went right from the Hardy Boys books to picking up their very adult books, Ludlum and things like this, that I probably shouldn't have been reading <laughs> at that young age, but it just, it was a, it was an addiction. The minute one would get put down, you know, next to the hammock or whatever. And I knew I could tell that the bookmark was out of it. That was always the indication that one of my parents had finished the book. It didn't have a bookmark in it. I grab it and I would read it. So yeah, I, I was, you can't be a writer, David, without even being a halfway decent reader. It, it is an absolute prerequisite. Yeah. And it's so funny because I, it's funny that you mentioned that point about watching because I always, the, where I picked up my reading is because my mom was always sitting around the house reading and she was a prolific. She would read a book a day. I don't know how she did it. Um, I, I can do it in two now, but not in not in one. And uh, so I grew up around that. And I'm like, well, that's if my you know mom and dad are reading, I I'm going to read too. And uh, See, yep. so very similar. And I, do you have an, uh, a favorite? Like you mentioned, uh, Hardy Boys. Do you do you have a favorite like that stands out? When I read this as a kid, that's when I want. Whoa, maybe I could do this. You know, it's funny. It wasn't a book that did it for me. Uh, I, I just, it's the Hardy Boys. I read all of the Black Stallion books. That was a big deal. And I remember uh, the Scholastic Book Club where we would get the paper catalog and you could bring it home. The teachers normally gave it to us on a Friday. So we'd have time to pick out our books and get the check. You know, the money actually, sometimes my mom would give me an envelope and it'd have X amount of dollars and coins in there and that kind of a thing. You'd go home. And then there was that strip on the back, the order strip, and you would cut it out with a pair of scissors. You'd write your name in there and what you wanted. And you'd have to bring the money in for the teacher. And I always had that thing loaded up. That was the one thing my parents never denied us was books. And I kept doing that with my kids. Uh, it's funny. Somebody got very savvy. Uh, our local bookstore in Chicago was a Barnes and Noble that was right around the corner from us. And, and my son got wise to this very fast that I would always buy books and some savvy book uh, publisher would do these great books, but there'd be a toy packaged with the book, you know, so there'd be a little fire truck or, or a police cruiser or, or whatever. And so uh, my son found a way to get a little toy and a book every time we went to the, to the local B&N. Uh, smart kid. Yeah, smart guy. You know, we only have about a decade between us and by your looks, it's obvious you're the younger one, but, um, were you, were you like me, uh, growing up, uh, that when you, you just set your, because I've watched your career over the years and did, were you like me, did you set your eyes on a goal and your mind to a task and said that right there? That's what I want. And that's what I'm going for. Cause it looks that your career has been indicative of that. No. Uh, what's interesting is oh. my uh, second semester junior year, I studied abroad in Paris 
And I took with me, my mom was an executive recruiter and she was working for a publishing company called Nightingale Conant. And uh, they did a lot of books on tape and things like this. And my mom gave me, uh, she got this stuff because they were a client. And so I took with me uh, two, and it was so books on tape. So they were cassette tapes. I took one and I forget the author's name. It was one book on negotiating on tape. And then the other one was a Tony Robbins course. Uh, and I listened to those because I didn't have a TV in my room. I could listen to French radio and things like that. But there, that was my entertainment uh, in addition to reading books. So I read this, uh, listened to this whole Tony Robbins. I don't know if it was Awaken the Giant Within or which one it was at that time. But for anybody who knows, I can't believe there's a single person listening to this that hasn't seen like a late night Tony Robbins commercial like he used to do or see him on YouTube or something. But um, Tony Robbins had a big thing about if you sow the same seed, you'll very likely reap the same rewards. Success leaves clues, study success. So uh, back to Paris, I made a good friend in Paris, and actually, that's who Rising Tiger is dedicated. Uh, she passed away in the fall. I lost my mom and this woman who was like my second mom uh, just this past fall. And uh, so I became good friends with this woman, Jill. She was delightful. Her kids were wonderful. She was a single mom, and we were just really good friends. She's British. She had married a French guy, was divorced. And we talk about books and movies and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, when I graduated from the University of Southern California, Jill had invited me. She said, I've got an extra room here in Paris. You keep talking about writing. If you want to come and stay here and take a crack at writing your first novel, come do it. And so I did. I'd been saving money while I was in college. I was leasing apartments in LA. And I went and I got a couple of chapters into a thriller. But David, I had this voice in the back of my head that I think a lot of us do that say, you know what? What if it's a failure? What if you write a crappy book? What if it doesn't get published? Uh, Don't risk the embarrassment. Better to quit than to be embarrassed. And I gave in to that voice. I really now believe uh, that that which we're most destined to do in life, we're often most afraid of. And we're afraid of failure. But years later, uh, I was when I was on my honeymoon, my wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done it? I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay. Uh, I was a travel show host at the time. I had a show called Traveling Light on public television. And she said, when we get home, you need to start taking two hours a day, protected time, make that dream come true. And I did. And now this is my 21st with Harvath as a protagonist, 22nd overall. And I just felt with losing Jill last fall, she and my mom both went the same way. They both had dementia. Uh, so it wasn't COVID related. It was it was dementia. Uh, but I just felt like, you know, I dedicated a book to my mom years and years ago. And I thought my second mom just passed. And I really owe her for allowing me to kind of begin trying my hand at writing. Uh, so that's why she's the person I dedicated Rising Tiger to. That is a fantastic story. And a little piece of that I was going to share later because it was going to be one of those things that you and I have in common. And that is our both of our wives have said at one time to us, if this was it, if you had a year to live, if you were going to die soon, that kind of a thing, if you could do something for the next year, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And this happened with us when I was we living in New York City. Uh, and I said, write a book. And she said, starting tomorrow, sit down, get at it and carve out some time. And so when I read that story about you, I'm like, oh my God, that is, I mean, who gets, who gets this opportunity in life when you have a partner in life who says, look, I know how important this is to you. So sit down, do it. And I've got your back. I got you covered. Um, You can pay, you can pay back later by making it successful, right? 
So right. just and you can't chicken out because you're a man and you've told your wife this is this is my deepest desire. Uh, yeah, I, I I joked that my man card was on the table. I didn't want to see it get dropped into the shredder, so I had to do it. But it is all kidding aside. It is in and you realize that as well. It is yeah. with that kind of support from your spouse. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing to have somebody say, "I got your back. Go do it. I'm going to make sure you're protected and you can get this done." Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the man card. I like that a, a little addition because yeah. if you if you drop the ball, it's all on you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, speaking of this, and you held up the coin, and made me think of this. Here's the crazy thing to me as it pertains to your prolific career. I mean, your first big hit, 2002, and I'm sitting here, Lions of Cern. I'm thinking to myself, that's only 20 years ago. And when I say mm-hmm. that phrase, I'm like, that sounds like a long stretch, but it doesn't really seem that far. But look at you, and I. Correct me if I'm wrong. One great monster hit after another every single year since, right? Yeah, I mean, I I made a bestseller list with Lions, but it was not the New York Times list. It wasn't USA Today. It wasn't one of the the big, huge lists. I I think I made a regional list or something like that. And then we just built from there. Uh, And what is, let's see. So I think. I think if I remember correctly, it was my fourth book. I'm looking at them off to the side here. My fourth book, Blowback. Uh, I'd have to crawl deeper into my office. I have like the way people frame records. I've got yeah. the lists and the the book covers. But I remember uh, I was, gosh, where was it? Kansas, I believe. And I was on book tour and my editor called me and said, I've got great news. Uh, you hit the New York Times list. And, uh, and I can't remember what the order was, but I'd hit the New York times list, uh, for paperback with my book blowback. And well, I was like, Oh, that's great. She's like, you're a New York times bestseller now, blah, 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 blah. And we talked and hung up. Then she called me back. She was, Oh my God, I didn't even read the rest of the list. You also hit it in hardcover for your most recent book takedown. So when I hit the New York times list, I hit it in paperback and hardcover, uh, two different books. And so that was fourth fourth and fifth book for me. So yeah, that's how it happened. And that is no easy feat. This does not, I mean, I'm learning more and more having interviewed uh, some pretty sizable uh, authors in my day here. And uh, the, you know, the, the end all is that New York times bestseller list, I, I think anyway. And uh, I always thought, oh, well, if you just sell a buttload of books, you're, you'll make it, but it's way harder than that, isn't it? I mean, it's, there's there's a lot. As you and I are recording this, I've got one eye looking over my shoulder at Ellen Hildebrand uh, yeah. because she came out last month with I'm not going to even mention the title because <laughs> I'm trying. I'm not, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, spoil anything. But anyway, she's got a very. I I hear she is just the loveliest, loveliest woman. Uh, she's got a great, loveliest person. She's just a great author, and she's got a huge fan base. She's doing extremely well with her new book. So, uh, and it's really caught fire. So I'm kind of watching, going, hmm, wonder what's going on because uh, next week we'll see first week sales for Rising Tiger. And I'm still competitive, David. Yeah. You know, I still. Uh, it's funny. Uh, several years ago. Uh, I got number two on the list and uh, somebody that works with me, she's like, so you didn't get number one. What's the big deal? And I'm like, well, and she goes, listen, if I had come to you when you were a creative writing student at the University of Southern California and told you, you would be in a neck and neck horse race with James Patterson 
co-writing with an ex-US president, a thriller. And you they would take number one, they would edge you out, they'd get number one, you get number two, what would you say? And I would, I'd say, oh my God, dream come true, be fabulous. She goes, okay, have that gratitude that you would have. And I was like, you know what? That's a really great way to look at it. It's, it's good to be competitive. I think being competitive is healthy. I think it makes me work hard, uh, pay attention to details, take care of my customers because they're my employers. I always tell people, I don't work for the publisher. I work for the readers. They're yeah. my bosses. And so when you talk about me giving away challenge coins on Facebook and stuff like that on social media, it's because I, I'm always trying to find ways to say thank you to the people that make this incredible career possible. Well, and it's obvious. And I and I forgot the second part of the question, which was as I set up all these accolades is what what do you think, Brad, yourself? What's and this is varies differently from what I'm going to ask you in a couple of minutes. But what do you think is your secret sauce? What's that thing that just makes every hit that every book just kind of a hit. Well, I know there's some hallmarks of what I do. There's not a formula, but you know, it's the action starts on page one is a big thing. I think that's really important. I always love that how the Bond movies didn't have a slow, but they dropped you right in the middle of an ongoing assignment and bam, you were slammed right into the action. Yeah. I love that. But what I call what I do faction, David, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. Yeah. Uh, so I like to take a big geopolitical set piece and look at how could this potentially be uh, a problem for the United States? And then my protagonist, Harvath, is the solution to that problem. And I put him in there. You know, years ago, I started going to a much shorter chapter format. So you get these short, crisp, cinematic chapters. If you compare Rising Tiger to Lions of Lucerne, you're going to find I do in three to four chapters today what I used to do in one longer chapter yeah. back then. Uh, and that's just a reflection of the times we live in. People have shorter attention spans. And uh, it's tough. It takes a lot of discipline to finish a book. But what I found is, is that by breaking the chapters down and making them shorter, people get a sense of accomplishment. I read it. Oh, gosh. And then I leave each chapter with a little bit of a cliffhanger that makes you want to get into the next one. Yeah. So, But I do think it's the faction component. I think that's what people enjoy. They get a great white knuckle thrill ride. But when you close one of my books, the icing on the cake for me is if you know a little bit more than when you started. You're a little yeah. bit smarter for having read the book. It's not a training manual. It is pure entertainment. But there's enough stuff that's in there that people go, oh, my God, you know, I actually read your books with my phone out or my laptop open because I want to Google because I can't believe the things you're talking about are true. And then I say, oh, my God, they're true. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I love about it is that you do, you start off uh, with a rocket and you end with a little hook. And I've noticed that the, that has been a seismic shift over the last couple of decades. And when you compare those two books, it is exactly what you said, but you do, you find yourself, especially with white space and the way that we're, we're our eyes are following and, and moving mm -hmm. faster. My question that, uh, was curious about, and you're, you're one step ahead of me, is that do you think our attention spans have shortened? And do you think that's indicative of why you think this five, six, 700 page, uh, Stephen King, notwithstanding, right. is falling away? Cocaine's <laughs> a hell of a drug. <laughs> hell of a drug. I know he doesn't do cocaine anymore, but boy, he used to. He used yeah. to. He admits so. That's how he was able to, part of being very prolific was the, was the, Bolivian marching powder. Uh, 
I, you know, I do think, so I think discipline is one thing, as we talked about, it takes a lot of self-discipline to finish a novel. Uh, attention span, sure. I, I think we've been so trained by social media before the internet really exploded. My brother-in-law used to have a great line because my sister-in-law used to get ticked that he was always pushing the button on the TV remote and she'd get pissed that he wouldn't stay on anything. And he's like, honey, it's not about what's on. It's about what else is on. Right. Uh, and he would just keep dialing around. So I think that we do have a shorter attention span. And listen, what I do is it's show and it's business, right? So yeah. I've got to have a, you, you have to have a good marketing team, good sales team, all of which I have fabulous publicity people. Um, but you have to think about the end user. And one of the things I'm like a broken record at Simon Schuster, where I said, I get it. You people are one, they're all massive book lovers. They're smart business people, yeah. but they're all massive book lovers as well. As am I, we're all big readers. And sometimes I have to bring a discussion back to like, listen, this is no different than if we're selling bicycles, butter, or doorbells. It is a business. And they all say, yes, you're exactly right. And I said, so for a second, we have to step away from our love of just reading and of books and say, how do we reach the consumer? And they're like, oh, no, no, absolutely. So I never fight over this kind of stuff with my publisher. They get it. But there are times where I'm like just merciless with treating it as a product and not a work of art. Because my big thing, David, is it's what, 28, 30 bucks for a hardcover, yeah. 15 bucks for a, for a digital copy, for, for an ebook. Uh, and so if you buy one of my books, you can go back to work and make more money to buy another book. If you don't like it and you end up throwing it out, you can go make, you know, spend a couple hours at work and make the money to buy another book. What you can't make more of is your time. That's right. a finite commodity. So it is incumbent upon me to give you the best Again, white knuckle thrill ride I'm capable of because you have entrusted me with the most valuable resource you have. So your time could have been spent with your family, could have been spent on furthering your own career, pursuing another hobby outside of reading that you love. It could be your health. Maybe you go to the gym. So that is really, I always feel the weight of that more than I do the dollars. And that really drives me to be the best and to keep raising the bar every year. I spend a lot of time in the off season reading books on writing, believe it or not. I'm 22 oh. books in. This doesn't get any easier. My job gets harder because I raise the bar for myself. Now, do readers notice? Like, do you notice the changes I've made between this book and last year's book? Maybe not. And you shouldn't. It shouldn't be that radically different. I want you to have that Brad Thor experience. But behind the scenes, I'm trying to, if I'm the king of baked Alaska <laughs> or I don't know, some potato souffle or whatever, I want to keep tweaking the recipe to give you a better one, not different, but better. Because Vince Flynn, before he passed way too soon, uh, Vince had uh, done an article, uh, I think it was with the Objectivist Center. Uh, it was a magazine and my mom had handed it to me. She's like, oh, Vince is in this uh, interviewed in this magazine. And one of the things Vince said is he's like, if you're batting 300 and you know you're going to go to the Hall of Fame, why would you start changing up your swing? Why would right. you start working on the swing? And so... That makes a lot of sense. You don't want to radically change it, but I also believe that being an author is one of these careers where you can constantly better yourself through sure. reading other people and through reading books on writing. Just my opinion. This is a great point to interject something I was going to do later. Uh, I ran a quick poll on Twitter right before I started uh, our recording, and I was just curious, any of uh, my followers have a question for you 
that uh, they'd like to ask. And I've got one from uh, Eric Bishop in North Carolina. He says, you came into prominence about the same time as Vince Flynn. You both share the same publisher and you both have iconic character audiences love. His question, do you have a story of an interaction with Vince that personifies who he was as a writer. God, I, I met Vince for lunch in Minneapolis one time. I was on a book tour there. Uh, Vince was very nice, uh, just a super, super nice guy because he gave me uh, a blurb uh, for my very first book, for The Lions of Lucerne. Uh, I had been traveling. Uh, it was on my honeymoon. Uh, my wife and I, after I told my wife that I wanted to write a book and get it published and had decided I was going to do it, we had an overnight train ride from uh, Munich to Amsterdam. And we shared it with a young brother and sister from Georgia. And she was a sales rep for Simon & Schuster. And she said, we've got this exciting new author. You've got to read him. Uh, You might be able to find him in an English bookstore while you're traveling. And his name is Vince Flynn. He wrote this book called Term Limits. And uh, it was this sales rep for Simon & Schuster. uh, When we pulled into Amsterdam, she knew me from my TV show. She and her brother were big travelers. They always took trips to Europe whenever they could. And she had said, what are you doing when you get home? Are you making more episodes of your TV show? And I said, I've actually decided I'm going to write a manuscript. I've always wanted to do a thriller. And she gave me her business card and said, if you get it written, I'd love to read it. And if I could help you at Simon & Schuster. So that's how Vince and I, or how I ended up, Vince was there first. Vince was with Emily Bessler at Simon & Schuster. And this sales rep, Cindy Jackson, got my manuscript to Emily Bessler at Simon & Schuster. And I remember going out for drinks to celebrate signing with uh, Simon & Schuster. And Emily said, I got to be honest with you. I didn't know what to think. We normally don't get manuscripts handed to us from people on the sales force. She said, but I read Lines of Lucerne. It was the best three days I've had. I loved reading it. I wish I could have sat and read it in one sitting, uh, but it was right around Christmas time. So she was going crazy. And she called me like the day before Christmas and said, we'd like to have you be an author here. So, but back to Minneapolis, listen, Vince was just always a very charming, very funny guy. And so I remember, and he was beloved by everybody. Everybody who met Vince loved him. So uh, Eric Bishop, great question, but I'll never forget. uh, I'll never forget. We met for lunch. He, Vince said, oh, I got a real cool place next to your hotel. And it was this fun, really nice, new, chic restaurant and everything. And it, uh, and it came time to pay the bill. And I got out my wallet to, you know, to try to pay. He's like, no, 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 this is, this is, this is for us. And the publisher is going to pay for it. And I didn't know that the publisher, when you go on book tour, will issue you a credit card for incidentals. And I said, where'd you get that? He goes, oh, he goes, he goes you sh- you'll eventually get one for incidentals while you're on book tour. And I said, but you're not on tour. He goes, don't worry. I make them enough money that they can pay for lunch today. And it was really, so he's just such a charming guy. Always had fun stories. I think it was the Irish in him that he was a natural born storyteller and yeah. very, very charming. So, uh, so not a specific story that in kind of him as a writer, because we didn't talk about writing that much. We talked about the business of writing and publishing, uh, which is what I really enjoyed about him. He's a very wow. smart guy when it came. And he was self-published to start. He was a hustler like Grisham going around, yeah. you know, with his books, getting people to buy his books and everything. So he was self-published before he got picked up at Simon & Schuster. A real good salesman. Wow. And a good human being. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gone too soon. Uh, I, I, yeah, ripped through all of his books uh, early on. But I want to go back to your creative writing days at USC. Mm-hmm. And what was studying under the tutelage of uh, T.C. Boyle like? He was amazing. Uh, I just got to host Tom for the Miami Book Fair and interview him about his most recent uh, book. 
Uh, and he's, listen, he's a character. He's got this wild hair and he wore an ear cuff, you know, yeah. which was a wild piece of jewelry. And he's just super smart. And we used to tease him uh, because he was like the David Hasselhoff of writers because he sold like unbelievably in Germany, just like Hasselhoff is like huge in Germany. Yeah. Uh, and he's just a charming, decent, super smart guy. Uh, that had so much wisdom. How can you not respect somebody who is that successful of an author who wants to come and run the creative writing department at a major university? This is somebody who wants to give back. And we've stayed in touch all these years later. Just just a super, super guy. Um, So, But outside of Tom's control at USC, one of my biggest complaints was, is we did the components of writing, you know, this is how you write a chapter, blah, 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 blah. But we never learned how to read a royalty statement. It would have been fun to have a business side of this is how you get a, this is how you get a publisher. This is how you get an agent. Let's talk about query letters. We never got into the business side of it. It was all the art side. But I suppose there's probably not a lot of people that go through the creative writing process that end up becoming, you know, uh, published authors and can make a living at it. So I, I would assume that's why that's not a huge part of the curriculum, uh, or at least it wasn't when I was there. But yeah, and I've had some guests on who have gone on to get their master's degree in creative writing and such. And I don't I, ever I don't get that. I was going to ask you what you thought. I thought about that. No. Yeah. No. I wish I had a great singing voice. I love Nat King Cole. I wish I could sing like that. And guess what? (laughs) No matter how many voice lessons I take, I am never going to be a good singer. You either have it or you don't have it. And I think it's the same thing with writing. I think either you can write uh, a gripping novel. And I always tell people the key is, uh, let me back up to Stephen King. Stephen King in his fabulous book about writing called On Writing said that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I always tell people that line. And then I add, you also already have a mini PhD in that genre. You know why you loved six of books by like for me, let's just pull somebody like Clancy. I know why I love these six books, but the seventh book was a clunker. And here's why. And I'm not saying Clancy's seventh book was a clunker. Right. I'm just using him as an example. Right. So this can going through a master's degree, I guess if you want to teach is pro- there's, there's, I'm not saying master's degrees are worthless. It, it, you get, you want to get an MFA. Great. Go do it and more power to you and God love you. But if you want to become an author, I, I just, I never saw the value of getting a master's degree for me. It was a matter of, you know, seat of pants, a seat of chair. And as Jack London said, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. And that's just what you have to do. It's all discipline. It's discipline to read and it's yeah. discipline to write. Yeah. I wish you had given this some thought, Brad. I mean, you, you really were pulling for some ideas. Uh, Not passionate. No, exactly. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to find out something very interesting in my entire radio career. I have never interviewed a person like Brad who's going to be able to answer this. Stay with us. David Temple here for the Thriller Zone. And I want to say a very big warm welcome to Warwick's Bookstores. They're based in La Jolla, California. They are a family-run bookstore, unlike any I've seen maybe ever. Talking about customer service, quality products, vast array of books, including autograph books. I mean, they really have it all. My single favorite thing, and it's the one thing that is lacking in today's society, uh, in my opinion, exceptional 
customer service. How often do you get to say, hey, I went to shopping at so-and-so. Their customer service is amazing. That's what you're going to find at Warwick's Bookstore. Now, if you're not in the San Diego area, you can, of course, shop for them online at warwicks.com. Warwick's is the country's oldest continuously family-owned and operated bookstore. You're thinking, that can't be true. That's got to be oodles of them only one. Oh, my, one of my favorite things, they have signed book author events. This is where I discovered in person, Don Winslow, Jack Carr, Meg Gardner. These big authors that we admire so much, share their story, read from their books. You can get autographed copies right there. You want to shop for a gift and you can do it online. That's what I'm talking about. You can actually go to the website, warwicks.com. I can't say enough nice about them. And of course, thank you, Warwicks, for believing in this show and being one of our prime sponsors. Hey there, I'm Brad Thor. I am the author of the new thriller, Rising Tiger, and I'm hanging out in the Thriller Zone with my friend, David Temple. Have you ever heard the phrase, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results? (laughs) You ever done that? Oh man, I have. There's one way in particular that this rings true. I used to build my own websites. I used to build them for other people too, professionally, but I built them for myself. The problem with doing things yourself when it's not your absolute center of forte is that you're never happy. And you know what happens when you're never happy? You keep tweaking. It never really gets finished. And on top of that, you ever heard this phrase? The cobbler never has time to repair his own children's shoes. So mixing those two together, sometimes when you're stacked up with other people's business, you kind of neglect your own. Thank goodness I found the company AuthorBytes.com. Why is that? AuthorBytes.com is a website host and developer specifically for authors. Now, you can be a big time author or you can be an up and coming, right? The thing is, you got to dedicate the time to doing something right. And sometimes you just don't have the time or the expertise. And so the insanity comes in when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, but while you're expecting different results, they don't really come. Go to authorbytes.com. They're going to consult with you. They're going to design the website. And then the best part, they do all the heavy lifting. They take care of the security, all the stuff that might keep you up late at night, they take care of. And if you use the code, the thriller zone, they'll give you three months free with a one-year contract. Crazy, right? Authorbytes.com. Use the code, the thriller zone. And Stop the insanity. And we are back with the Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Brad Thor is my guest. The book is Rising Tiger. It's a hell of a read. It's beautiful. We're going to talk about that. But as I said just before the break, in my entire radio career, which is about 26 years, in working five of the top 10 markets and on Westwood One Radio and Armed Forces Radio Network, you're the first person in all that time that I've interviewed that did this one thing, and that is announce their candidacy for president of the United States. <laughs> and I, I, of course, I knew this and I'm like, wow. And I'm like, what would be that one question you wanted to ask? Do you ever look back and wonder what if I had run and won? No, it was the way the country is structured, the way the two party system is structured. It, it, it wouldn't happen. 
it wouldn't have happened. I, I'm the son of a United States Marine. We were taught growing up that we don't own this country. We're merely stewards of the Republic. And it's incumbent upon us to hand uh, to the next generation a freer, more successful, more prosperous, more secure nation. So I was very concerned with the direction that politics was going. And I wanted to throw my hat in the ring to actually just get to the debate stage, because I wanted to bring up these issues on the debate stage. And then I realized, I'm like, I just I left the, the the particular party that I had been aligned with my whole adult life. I bailed out and I was just like, no, nah, I'm going full independent and, and that's it. And I'm I'm out. So. Well, I having I've caught a couple of your appearances on television and you are I mean, you are well spoken. You're well thought out. You 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 know what you're talking about. And that right there is, is impressive enough. But I could see how that is a soup that one may not want to swim in because I don't know. I, I want to be real careful because I don't spend a lot of time with politics or religion on the show for all mm -hmm. obvious reasons. And yeah, yeah. It's very divisive, especially yeah. right now. So I don't really want to go there, but I, I, I did hear you made a comment about uh, one of our former presidents that uh, uh, we'll leave it at that. And uh, you weren't exactly in agreement. And this wasn't I, my porn star comment, was it? Uh, no, but I would love to hear that one. I, I happen to say that a particular person in politics had more positions than a porn star. Uh, <laughs> and this was in the primary stage. I said that to my friend, Megan Kelly, and she got a, she had to pause. Uh, it was funny because I was doing it to, I don't like the monitor going when I'm doing a remote. And so I asked him to turn it off because there's a lag. You can yeah. hear in the IF, you can hear in your ear uh -huh. what's being said in real time, but there's a video. So I turned it off. So what I didn't realize till I got home from the studio, the remote studio and watched it was that Megan Kelly put her hand up to the camera. It was like, wait, I have to recover from that. And then she's like, whoa, okay. So sorry. I didn't mean to step on your, uh, whatever it was you were going to go to there. David. No, that that's, I just, uh, I'm going to leave it alone at, uh, <laughs> you're saying no. All right. I'm going to go back for one more, uh, writing question because I, and you said something, I thought, oh, Brad, Brad Thor said that. Do you ever find yourself worrying, getting sweaty palms, that sense of, wait, what if my creative stream dries up and, and or people don't like my books anymore? And on the flip side, what's your favorite part of your writing career? So it's kind of a two-headed beast. Yeah. So, you know, the, the challenge is I do a book a year and quality is really, really important for me. I am incapable of phoning it in. Yeah. So, uh, so to top myself, to do top myself in the sense of I'm doing something I haven't done in another book and I'm raising, we talked earlier about, I raise that bar, yeah. even if it's just by a millimeter, the reader might not notice, but I notice because I'm trying to get better and to give a better book every single year. So the, the concern is, well, what am I going to do for next year? Because retailers now would like you to start announcing earlier. It's like Christmas coming earlier and everything. You know, get that book online, start gathering those pre-orders and all that kind of stuff. So it's pressure enough to do. I love deadlines. They make the most beautiful sound as they go racing past. It's the old <laughs> joke. So, but I still, you know, people build their vacations around my books. So there is a pressure to come out end of June, beginning of July. And that's what I'm contracted with the publisher for. So it's, am I going to, what's next year's idea going to be? And uh, so the more pressure that comes, the less you're 
you're able to kind of allow things to happen organically. But my agent asked me, she said, well, what would you think if we next time negotiated that you come out every 18 months? I'm like, no, I know what it's like to count on authors I love as a reader. And I want those books out every year. And I said, I wouldn't do anything but procrastinate with that extra six months anyway. It's not going to take any of the stress off. I would just blow six months. I mean, you, you want to see the cleanest desk, the cleanest garage, the cleanest closets. <laughs> it's somebody that's under a deadline, particularly writers. So that's more of where my stress comes from. I'm not worried about uh, other things. It's about how do I how do I get the next big cool idea? And it happens. It's just I have to marinate in the news and all that kind of stuff. So that's that. The part that I love the most and that I've had to draw down on because we have an immunocompromised person in our family is the actual in-person touring. So COVID has really put, uh, has put I've been able to do virtual stuff uh, and uh, that kind of a thing, but it's no, it's no substitute for being out there and shaking hands and taking pictures and that kind of stuff because I like to get out and meet readers. That's a that's a that's that's my favorite part of the whole thing, and so that's been denied to me. Uh, but uh, but I get to do this. I get to have some human interaction by doing interviews like this. And uh, thank God we've got this technology. I don't know what we would have done twenty years ago. We wouldn't have. Uh, that's pretty much. It. And you know what? Some one thing I really like about your story, and I got to do this as a side note, is that. Uh, and I was and I was studying this paragraph after paragraph. Is how much information you jam in. This is just a statement, not a question. How much you jam into a paragraph? And I'm and I I will often as I. I mean, I'll sit and I'll highlight and put notes oh, wow. in here because I, I love to study the craft of it and and just go, all right, how does he do that? It, he makes it, he keeps it interesting. He keeps it moving. He's shoving a lot of information in. Uh, I heard this great quote where someone said, uh, I think it was Don Winslow said, every word has to pay rent. And I'm like, every word's paying rent right here. I mean, there's nothing wasted. Die. Elmore Leonard said uh, the two best pieces of advice he could give young writers is number one, don't ever start with the weather. It was a dark and stormy night. Don't do that. And number two, leave out the parts that people skip. This comes back to me being a young reader reading Clancy. My dad used to joke that he was convinced Clancy got paid by the word because (laughs) there was so much stuff in there that didn't need to be in there. And I would skip parts in Clancy. I don't need to know how a missile guidance system works. I just need to know that there's a couple of, you know, green berets that are shining a a laser on a house and the hellfire missile is going to find it. It, The laser can't be seen by the human eye and the, the, the missile is going to hit the house and kill the bad guys inside. That's all I need to know. I don't want to know about the gyroscope that helps it stabilize or what kind of fuel powers it. And yeah, I might talk about how fast it's moving through the air, but that's, that's it. So again, Elmore Leonard, leave out the parts that people skip. That's a real big thing when you're writing, particularly a thriller, the details are the bedrock of it, but you have to be very judicious yeah. with what you put in. So Winslow's right about every word's got to pay rent. That's a great term. Yeah. Smart I've learned guy. so much hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, we've got to get to the book, of course. I find myself uh, jammed with <laughs> all these right. questions. I'm going to squeeze one more question in here, and that is this. Uh, because for whatever reason, us writers love to know, I don't know why, we love to know the pattern behind the process. So I'm going to ask, what's your what what's kind of your daily process? I'm curious myself. I know a lot of my listeners are, you know, early riser, night owl, uh, eight hours a day, five days a week, or a uh, word count? 
So first of all, I am not an early riser, but I do force myself to get up. It's kind of that Jocko Wilnick thing. I'm not doing 4 a.m. like Jocko does, but I, by nature, I am not an early riser, but I get up because I got, you know, kids to get off to school. I want to see them and all that kind of stuff. But I, I get up, see the kids, get them off to school, work out, get into the office. But I got to be honest, I'm doing anything but writing till about three in the afternoon. It's oh. not till later in the day that my, and I don't know if that's because it's the pressure and I know that, I, you know, I'd like to be home with my family for dinner, uh, but it really doesn't kick in for me. I'll, I'll be reading articles on the internet, listening to podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, it gets to the point where I'm getting closer and closer to the deadline and I've got to unplug my Wi-Fi because it's just, I, I, it, that's part of how I have to be you know, focus on getting the stuff done, but I'm very much a night out. I can spend, and there's nights where my kids will bring me, you know, a dinner covered with foil and bring it over to my office above the garage and I'll, I'll eat at my desk and that kind of a thing. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for bearing with me all that. All right. We talked about this beautiful cover. I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to start and let you finish this so I don't have to go into great detail or spoil anything. So Scott Harvath is in a jam, maybe his worst ever. And this time his mission is. <laughs> his mission is uh, to track down who killed an, uh, what I call a shadow diplomat in India, an American diplomat that was sent on a secret mission to India. Uh, in real life, the big geopolitical set piece for me, David, in coming up with the idea for Rising Tiger was two summers ago, uh, a group of Chinese soldiers crept through the Himalayas uh, into this disputed border area with India. And since 1996, no firearms have been allowed in this area so that things don't spiral out of control and into war. And the Chinese soldiers came in, it looked like walk, something out of Walking Dead. They had made improvised weapons that they brought with them. Iron rods studded with spikes, baseball bats wrapped with barbed wire. And there was this six hour hand-to-hand -hand combat throwing people off thousand foot cliffs. I mean, it was brutal. It was bloody. It was barbaric. Uh, and I was fascinated by this. And I said, why am I not hearing more about this skirmish in the United States? And the more I dug into it, I said, wow, India is fascinating. I didn't know anything about it. I thought, wouldn't it be cool for a story to say America wants to set up an Asian version of NATO, the Chinese would lose their minds over something like that. And they'd want to stop it because India, while the United States is the world's oldest democracy, India is its biggest. So the, we're a natural ally and partner with India in the idea that the U.S. would try to get something off the ground and the Chinese would be picking off U.S. diplomats and causing trouble for India as well. And Harvath's got to go over and get to the bottom of what's going on so that these talks don't get derailed and this alliance uh, can, can be birthed, if you will. Well, and, and the thing I love about Scott is that, you know, he's um, you're going to get in the tightest situation ever and get out. You're going to not all you're going to have the best weapon and then lose the weapon and then figure out how to get mm -hmm. through it. I mean, that it's it's that kind of stuff that I always say. This is why I love reading thrillers, because uh, with this kind of a job and, and all the things that take our time. You want to escape, but you don't want to. I, I personally don't want to carve out just days because I got too much to do. And that's what books like yours enable me to do. Just get lost. <sighs> time flies. It's a rocking good time. Thank you. Yeah. That's the goal. Do you, I do have this one question I'm curious about because you have spent your entire career with Harvath. Do you find yourself ever going, hmm, 
what if there's somebody else up here in my head? What if maybe, maybe I have another hero that I could release to the world, even pen name or otherwise. Do you ever do that? No. And here's why. Because originally I never intended to write a second book with Harvath. And I told, I, I loved Michael Crichton and I loved the idea of being able to pick up with a new cast of characters, a new protagonist with a different background and exploring, you know, what motivates people and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, I'm just going to write different protagonists every time in my editor. When she heard me say that, uh, when I told her about what I wanted to do for my second book, she's like, do you understand the response that Scott Harvath has generated in, uh, in the reading community? People want to go on an adventure with him again. You've got to write a new book with him. And she looked at me and she said, how many times have you gone into a bookstore, look for your favorite author? And even if the book is set someplace that maybe is not, you know, a part of the world that you're super excited about, but he's bringing back a character you love, you want to go on an adventure. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And she goes, you're going to disappoint people if you don't keep going with the Harvath. She's like, trust me, you want to do this. And it was fabulous advice. So I don't harbor a desire to do, I did one year, I did a second book about an all female Delta force team called the Athena project. And that was a lot to write two books in one year, but I really had the burning desire to write that book. I've got another book in mind for the ladies of the Athena project. So at some point I'd like to do that. But if I, if I do anything, it's going to be a, a book that's a spinoff for the troll, or I'm going to take uh, Chase Palmer or Sloan Ashby, a couple of the younger members on Harvest team, and maybe give them a book sort of a thing. But I'm going to stay in this universe because I've watched people career-wise who are successful here, and they try to make a lateral move to like something different. It's like you got a great steakhouse. Everybody loves it, but you've always <laughs> dreamed of having an ice cream shop. Well, that skill and that success is not necessarily going to translate if you move over to the ice cream shop. I could stay as a thriller person. That's not the best example. I could write another thriller character, but I've just built this following, this audience. And uh, again, they're my employers. They've been loyal to me for 20 plus years, and I want to return the favor. So as long as they keep reading, I'm going to keep giving them adventures with Scott Harvath. Awesome. You couldn't ask for anything more. Okay. As we begin to wrap up, I do have this one final question. I ask all my authors this. It's a pretty classic, but I love to hear the slight variation on the theme. And that is if you were to offer a single piece of advice, especially to aspiring writers, which I happen to know a lot of my audience is, what would that be? For aspiring writers. So this is the one that I love the best and it's very niche. So, you know, as people collect advice on writing, this is one I don't think anybody else is going to give you. And I hope that you keep it in your mind, aspiring writers. Uh, Agents are very, very important. Okay. Don't be discouraged if you get a couple of rejections. I've watched people turn to self-publishing so quickly. Uh, Stick with it because the agents have the relationships with the editors and the big publishing houses and things like this. Here's the secret though. Here's the piece of advice beyond stick with it. Don't give up. Uh, is agents will tell you, you should only query one agent at a time. Uh, That's BS. That's a terrible piece of advice. Uh, As far as I know, Moses did not come down with a third tablet uh, that has an 11th commandment that says only query one agent at a time. I tell people, if, if you submit to an agent and it takes that agent three months to get back to you, and you have to go through 12 agents before you find one, that's three years out of your life. I tell people, pick the five to 10 agents you think, A, I I tell everybody, get the Writer's Digest Guide to Literary Agents, because that breaks down like like an old-time phone book. It categorizes 
agents that are looking for the type of fiction or nonfiction, whatever it is you're writing, you can find agents that are open to submissions. Pick the five to 10 you like the best that you think would be the greatest uh, champions of your work and submit simultaneously. Okay. Why should you be on their timetable? Put them on your timetable. Let them compete. And the editor, or sorry, the agent who likes you, who really sees value in your query letter and your submission, they get back to you. That's going to tell you a lot. But this one at a time stuff is invented by agents and there's nothing that says you have to play by their rules. So don't make up your own rules. Golf clap. Boy, I love that one, Brad. Oh my God. I have always wondered. I'm like, who, all right, who Excuse me, who came up with that rule and and why should I follow that? Um, and being a PK, I'm going to break every rule I possibly can anyway. But uh, all right. If you ever watch the show, you know something called rapid fire questions. Sometimes they're rapid. Sometimes they're not. Number one, you and the family are heading out for a long road trip. What is the music playing on the car stereo? It can be band or genre. Uh, Van Morrison. Nice. Nice. Number two, your wife has told you, honey, go have fun. All guys weekend. You're in charge of planning. Get lost. It's an outdoor excursion. But the key is your mission. You're going to choose three or four thriller authors you'd like to hang out with for an entire weekend. Who would they be and why? Well, I got to take guys that I'm already friends with. So it would be Jack Carr, Kyle Mills, who writes the Vince Flynn books now, uh, Steve Berry, who cheats at cards, uh, but I still owe him money, and James Rollins. Nice. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. All right, number three, what's the book or books currently sitting atop your TBR stack? And I'm thinking more for pleasure, less for yeah. work. So right now I've got uh, the top of my stack is Never by Ken Follett. I've, and by the way, Ken Follett, uh, Pillars of the Earth is my all-time favorite book the best book I've ever read next uh, that's fiction. And uh, if I had to read a book over and over again, nonfiction, it would be uh, uh, Eric Larson's in the garden of beasts about the rise of Hitler in 1930s Germany. It's perfect. It was edited by my editor's husband. And I always credit him. There's not a single spelling mistake, typo, grammatical error. And every time I say that to my editor, she said he had a good copy editor. It wasn't my husband. So. <laughs> Oh, and you know what? With with authors, I'd also take my buddy Dan Brown too. Oh, okay. I, I gotta go back a question. Dan is a fascinating, <laughs> fun guy to hang out with. So Dan would have to be there too. Godly, what a time. All right, fourth and final. My wife Tammy and I have invited you and your wife to a fancy dinner here at our home in San Diego to celebrate the new Scott Scott Harvath TV series come to Netflix. I don't know if you knew this, they just bought it. It's in fa- fabulous. <laughs> We've asked you to bring along two people with you. They can be living or past, but we want two more extra people to kind of round out the evening with engaging conversation. Who would those two people be and why? No question. So first would be my buddy, Robert O'Brien, who is a lawyer in Southern California, who was the former national security advisor. And before that, he was the hostage czar responsible for helping get Americans out of captivity and returned to the United States. Brilliant, smart, funny guy. I've known him since the L.A. riots. He was a neighbor of mine when I was in college. Brilliant, brilliant guy. That'd be that'd be number one. Uh, Number two, number two. All right. Number two would be uh, a friend of mine up in L.A. as well named Des Carey. Des is Irish. He was in the film finishing business, built a huge company called Light Iron, knows everybody and has got great Irishman. He's got great stories to tell, whether it's uh, about J.J. Abrams, who developed Alias and Lost. And he knows everybody in Hollywood, has nice things to say about everybody. And he, he 
will all have us laughing before even the first course and we'll walk out of there grateful that we got to break bread with Des Carey. Man, great answer. Well, folks, uh, to learn more about Brad and this fabulous book, Rising Tiger, visit bradthor.com. On Twitter, you can follow him as I do, at bradthor. On Instagram, real bradthor. And on Facebook, bradthor official. So you can get him all over the place, Mr. Social Media. I got to tell you, Brad, this was an honor and a pleasure. And I have this funny feeling we could have talked literally for hours. And thank you for the gift of your time. Well, I appreciate it. And I do tons of interviews. And when I have somebody who's this generous and does their homework and is this much fun to do an interview with, the time just flies. So I thank you, David. Thank you. Did you live in Chicago when you were on the air in Chicago? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'm from Chicago. I know that. I almost brought that up. I lived uh, right on Lakeshore, Diversity and Sheridan. Sure. Uh, And I was on um, WCLR and then it became Big Mix 102. And then on WFYR, which was Fire 103, right before I got replaced by uh, Man Cow. I'll never forget the time Man Cow left me on hold and then ran out of time because he went long talking about magic mushrooms. Uh, the guy I missed was Brandmeier. Brandmeier. Oh, Johnny B. Johnny B. What is so he? Whatever good. happened to him? You know what? My wife and I were wondering, we live in Nashville now. So we're out of that. We've been down here eight years. I don't know where he is, but I remember when he was like filling in for Arsenio Hall and things like that. I mean, there was a guy that really had a bright future uh, in TV, I guess, if he wanted it. Super funny. Great mornings uh, with him. Piranha Man. Yeah. He just had such great people. Uh, Yeah. Just just such a fun show. Chicago. John Hancock, Hancock, uh, uh, Steve and Gary. That's yep. how far back I, that, those are the guys that really kind of launched part of my love of radio. And I got in. Did you grow up in Chicago? No, 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 no. But I used to, as a kid living in Carolina, would listen to Chicago radio on the AM. And that's, I mean, Larry wow. Lujak is the guy who Larry ign- Lujak, yeah. ignited the flame in my brain going, that's what I want to do. Did you ever listen or did you ever know John Records Landecker? Oh, yeah. Records Landegger. Yes. yes. So his daughter, Amy, and I went to high school together. We were at a small liberal arts high school across the street from Lincoln Park Zoo called Francis Parker. Oh, uh, yeah. Ann H. was in our class. Jennifer Beals and Daryl Hannah graduated uh, the year before we got there as freshmen. Chicago was the best of all my years in all, New York, L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit. Um, Chicago was the best. It was just the best of all worlds. You know, I was 30, a lot of money. Money, wow. A lot of, I mean, on the radio, I was just single. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get married to just a couple of years ago. I was going to be that oh, wow. bachelor forever. And then I met Tammy and I was like, wait, there's normal, solid, off to the <laughs> earth. Psychotic. Uh, oh, yeah. You can trust them and build a good life together. Good for you. Brad, I had a bad picker. That's all I'm going to say. I had a bad picker. <laughs> Oh, that's this has been an absolute joy, David. And I hope I can come back and do this with you again. And I'm glad to be at the top of your second year. And congratulations on that. Thank you so much. I'll get out of here and we will keep in touch. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. Man, oh man, oh man, Ashevitz. Was that a great time or what? Whew, that is worth the price of admission. Hey, wait, it was free. <laughs> Rising Tiger, Brad Thor. What a delight. Whew, I think he's coming back. Right when you think you couldn't get any better, it does. On next week's show, guess who's going to be here? The one and only Dean Koontz. 
I know, I said the same thing. Pinch me, baby, pinch me. Is it real? Yes. The book is The Big Dark Sky, New York Times bestselling author of 500 million copies on next week's show. That date, by the way, is 721. But anyway, you want to make sure you are here for Dean Koontz, The Big Dark Sky. And may I throw this at you while I'm still thinking about it? Have you had a chance to register to win your copy? I've got two of these, two copies of this book to a lucky listener watcher who simply wants to have one. It's a three-step process, real easy. Number one, write an email. The email is thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Number two, put in the subject line, I want Dean Koontz's book. And number three, in the body of the email, tell me where you're writing from, what city, what state, what country, and why you want the book. That's it. Thrillerzone at gmail.com. Subject line, I want Dean Koontz's book. Number three, this is where I'm writing for and this is why I want the book. That's it. That's all there is to it. Bing, bing, bing. We're going to take all those names, put them in a fishbowl. My lovely, talented, brilliant wife, Tammy, is going to reach and pull it out and we'll have a winner. All right? So, get that to me now. And then we will announce the winner on the show. Once again, thank you to Brad Thor, Rising Tiger. Grab a copy today. It is a page turner, white knuckler. And then join us next week for The Big Dark Sky with the ever so talented and nicest gentleman I have met in perhaps ever. I love my job. One last thing before I go. Another great big thank you to Warwick's Bookstores. They're based in La Jolla, California, not very far from where I live. They're a family-owned store. And you know what I love about them? Their customer service is unlike anything else you've ever seen. Yeah, they have the greatest selection of books ever. A lot of monographed by your favorite authors. But they've got great pens and leather goods and gifts. So if you're in and around the San Diego area, stop in. Tell them David Temple from the Thriller Zone sent you. They're going to take really good care of you. All right. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts or, of course, on thethrillerzone.com, leave us a review. Five stars is pretty fantastic. I mean, if you're an author and you get a five-star review, you're feeling pretty good, aren't you? We love the same thing. And it really does help the show. So thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for your emails. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I'm David Temple, your host. We'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.